Progressive News Network and the Environmental Justice Report here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janine Moloff, the producer and your host. This week, I think we have a really interesting uh, show. The big story really combines the missions of both the political part of our show, namely Progressive News Network, with our environmental show, which is a satellite, that's the Environmental Justice Report. You almost can't separate the two. Uh, I know we have listeners that really care about environmental issues. You know, they, they will text, they will email, and they'll say, Janine, I care about nuclear or I care about, you know, uh, carbon, and, and I, I want to do something about the environment. I'm not so into all the political ins and outs. And the fact is you can't really separate the two. What happens politically affects everything, including environmental. So single issue concerns, you need to become more global because, in terms of your perspective because it is different. So this week, it's a Supreme Court case that's coming up. The Supreme Court, or SCOTUS as it's called, accepted this case. And it's the uh, Loper Bright v. Gina Raimondo case. And otherwise known as the Chevron Deference Challenge. So if you saw the ad, it says EJR, the Environmental Justice Report with me, Janine Mullock, Chevron case could end any regulatory power. And this is really an important, really important case. So the Chevron doctrine or the Chevron Deference Doctrine was something that really gave the EPA teeth. Okay, and it took the political considerations away so that experts in various fields, in this instance, experts in environmental scientific issues, could actually craft regulations that made good scientific sense. Because let's face it, uh, you want Congress to do it. Most members of Congress are either people in business or they're lawyers. They're not scientists quite often. So. Let's let's talk about this. This is really this case of Loper Bright versus Gina Raimondo, which you know sounds really benign. I realize that. You have to understand Supreme Court cases that are accepted that have really important um, consequences often look very benign on the surface. You think, well, it's not a big deal, but you have to kind of glean through the issues. And this particular case has been on the surface. It looks like there are these fishermen that don't want to pay the cost of um, an observer from the EPA to make sure they're following the rules and regs. And it just sounds like, well, why should the fishermen pay for the cost? Uh, But the case itself, the lawyers for the case, have been funded by billionaires through a variety of of, uh, nonprofits and PACs and stuff. So this is not the little guy at all. That's you know, a pile of BS and mainstream media has made it look like, oh gosh, these are just, you know, working fishermen just trying to survive. Ah, wrong. So the Chevron Deference Doctrine, we're going to get into it in a minute, really began as a direct, uh, a direct attack. Let me back up a little bit here. This case is a direct attack against the EPA. Make no mistake about it, but it's, it's more than that. So The Chevron Deference Doctrine was first created to establish EPA regulatory power. And the doctrine has allowed federal agencies such as the EPA, but also other government agencies, 
to create regulations consistent with the law while reflecting the judgment of various experts in multiple fields, whether it's medicine, science, labor, economics, education, engineering, whatever. It makes sense as professionals in those various fields, um, you know, it makes sense for professionals in those fields to regulate and craft these sensible rules. They are the professionals. They know better. Uh, that is as opposed to members of Congress. Now, the Supreme Court is poised to strike down this 40-year precedent, again, otherwise known as the Chevron Deference Doctrine. Once reversed, the public theoretically would have no protection from corporate greed. There would be no regulations to ensure the safety, not only of our, our environment, but to ensure the safety of our food, our medicines, no regulations that could be held up governing labor law, or, or, again, environmental concerns. Any regulations, once the Chevron deference doctrine was, is gone, in theory, any regulations would have to either be listed specifically in the law, like items on your grocery list, or either wait for Congress to add to the law. Now, that sounds chaotic. That's because it is. The intent is to create chaos. So let's move on. And once again, you've got the conservatives on the Supreme Court that have personal grudges, especially Neil Gorsuch, um, and we're going to get into that. So this is our big story. Then we're going to have um, our Jackass of the Week Award, and then we also have an editorial. And the editorial deals with, you know, all this discussion about the Trumpers in your life. You know, you've heard a lot recently, especially from mainstream media, but also from some progressives, that these people that believe everything Trump says, they're like in a cult. And, you know, we need to be patient and try and deprogram them like you would any member of a cult. And perhaps, perhaps, um, but a lot of the deprogramming that's been suggested out there is looks a lot like appeasement. And my question is this. They're making excuses for the Trumper in your life, but there's no protection for the Trumpers would-be targets. And I think that nonsense has to stop. So that'll be our editorial. And, of course, we have the musical and sardonic stylings of Randy Rainbow this week. So with no further ado, let's move on back to the intro. And we're back. Let's go to our big story. Okay, Doug. So there were, I had a lot of sources for this particular story from the SCOTUS blog. Again, SCOTUS is the Supreme Court uh, from AmericanProgress.org, some great articles as well, from the Constitution Center as well. Uh, there was a great article from legal scholar Ian Milhauser at Vox. But the one that I thought most succinctly described what's going on came from top journalist Tom Hartman, who, you know, explains things like a master teacher. He, he truly does. I love him. And so this is from the Hartman Report. 
and it was published back in January, January 17, 2024. Um, again, this particular case has been accepted by the Supreme Court. They have not made a ruling yet, okay? So we, there's still a little time. And the headline is, does the EPA die today? Now, that may sound a little histrionic. It truly isn't. And the sub-headline is, the Supreme Court, it appears, is planning to gut most of America's regulatory agencies in what could be the most consequential rewrite of the protective, and in quotes, deep state since the New Deal, end quote. You have to remember, Republicans have been on this tangent to end any sort of regulation since the New Deal, all right? The Republican Party is the party that not only despises Social Security, no matter what they say, but they've been trying to destroy Social Security since FDR's time. So let's go to the Tom Hartman piece, though. Um, I'm going to read straight from this. Quote, Republicans on the Supreme Court are, it appears, planning to gut most of America's regulatory agencies in what could be called the most consequential rewrite of the protective deep, deep state since it was largely created during the New Deal in the 1930s, end quote. Um, and again, the lawyers for these fishermen, they're indirectly funded by a variety of agencies, and guess who gives to all these different nonprofits and PACs? <laughs> Traces back to our little friend, and I say so sarcastically, Charles Koch, libertarian monster extraordinaire. So, Hartman goes on to say, quote, the vehicle for this radical transformation of America is a case that will be argued today. Okay, so it was argued back in January. Again, the Supreme Court has not issued a decision, okay? Um, and the case is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Gina Raimondo, okay? And then, again, I'm reading straight from this article because Tom, I can't say it any better than Tom Hartman's studies. It gets straight to the point. Okay, so again, the case is Loper Bright Enterprises versus Gina Raimondo. You probably haven't heard a single word about that case. Not at all. With all these, these um, political commentators, you know, they'll talk about everything from Trump's, you know, crazy uh, comb over to his tantrums, but not something that's important. And this is both sides. So getting back to it, Tom Hartman writes, quote, if they pull it off, these six corrupt Republicans on the court could destroy the ability of the following. One, the EPA to regulate pollutants. Two, the USDA to keep our food supply safe. Three, the FDA to oversee drugs going onto the market. Four, OSHA to protect workers. Five, the CPSC to keep dangerous toys and consumer products off the market. Six, the FTC to regulate monopolies, and it goes on. The Department of Transit to come up with highway and automobile safety standards. The ATF to regulate guns. The Interior Department to regulate drilling and mining on federal lands. The Forest Service to protect our woodlands and rivers. The FCC to protect us from internet predators. And the Department of Labor to protect workers' rights, end quote. Now, have you heard that anywhere else? You probably, if you watch Tom Hartman's report on, um, oh God, I forget which, uh, on YouTube, you've heard it. But you wouldn't have heard all that anywhere else. 
That's how important the Chevron, Chevron deference doctrine is. It is the case, this is the case and the doctrine that allows these regulatory agencies to not only hire experts in their various fields, but to have these experts craft the actual regulations that are not only consistent with the law, they have lawyers that help them out as well, but that are that make good sense according to the science, according to the labor law, according to environmental science, according to medical science, according to um, you know educa good educational practice, uh, according to you know what else? Um, according to the science to make sure that our kids have safe toys as opposed to dangerous toys. Do you remember the day when toys were painted with lead-based paint? And it hasn't been that long that that regulation forbid lead-based paint on kids' toys. You know, just a few years ago, there were toys coming from China that had, I think it, was, I think it had, don't quote me, I think it had the Disney logo that had lead-based paint. See, without these regulations and without these experts in various fields to determine if this is appropriate, everything, including safe toys for your kid, will not happen. That's how important this case is. Seriously, you need to pay attention. Now, Tom Hartman goes on to say, quote, among other things on the right-wing billionaire wish list, virtually the entirety of America's ability to protect its citizens from corporate predation rests on what's called, as I said before, the Chevron deference, which the court appears prepared to overturn, end quote. Goes on to say, quote, far-right conservatives and libertarians have been working for this destruction of agencies, the ultimate in deregulation, ever since the first regulatory agencies came into being with the 1906 creation of the Pure Food and Drugs Act, end quote. Now, I'm stopping here for a second. We, as Americans, assume you go into the local butcher shop or you go into the grocery store and you're going to buy some hamburger, and we assume that it's safe to eat, that it's been processed correctly. This did not happen because billionaires decided we want to make sure that we're dealing with the public honestly. Not at all. Back, dating back to 1906, the journalist known as Upton Sinclair wrote a book, a novel, which was based on, a, on true stories, though, called The Jungle. And in it, in this novel, he, through the novel, he documented the unsafe practices, you know, where basically in these, these meat processing plants, these slaughterhouses, you would have workers sick with tuberculosis coughing on each other and on the meat. You would have these same workers um, basically relieving themselves uh, in an, um, an open latrine next to the meat. You would have actual meat that's been, that's spoiled, tainted with salmonella, whatever, mixed in with fresh meat and sold fraudulently. Back then, no, it, you took, it wasn't safe. You took a big risk getting your meat. And because people read Upton Sinclair's masterpiece, The Jungle, which, as far as I'm concerned, should be required reading of every high school kid, the F, the, um, excuse me, 
the Pure Food and Drugs Act was created. 1906. But now these jackasses on the Republican Party want to get, a, get rid of all that. Now their excuse, these libertarian jerks, their excuse will be, you know, you don't need all this. You know, the market will magically fix things. All right? In fact, I remember on Tom Hartman's program, he quoted Milton Friedman, who should rot now. And in Friedman's book, Friedman claimed that this great, alleged great economist, that there shouldn't be any licensure even. Like Milton Friedman was big, big on saying that doctors shouldn't have required licensure. That if somebody got hurt from a physician, well, they just do and, you know, things will magically work out. Well, they live past it. That's how insane this is. There is no common sense here. These are libertarian assholes. Excuse my language, but they are. They're libertarian assholes that whose maturity level is at the level of, what, a 13-year-old snot-nosed boy? And either that or they're just such cold-blooded monsters, they don't care who gets hurt as long as their billionaire benefactors keep getting more and more and more. Make no mistake about it. When the very rich run everything, people that are extremely rich, our society is run by addicts. It's just their drug of choice is greed and power. But they're addicts nonetheless, and they think they know more than they do. So, you know, and gunning these agencies, according to Tom Hartman, I agree, that's what Steve Bannon was talking about when Trump brought that Nazi into the White House. You know, that's what he meant when he said that they wanted to, quote, deconstruct the administrative state. Okay? That's what they're talking about. That means that you wouldn't be able to trust anything you buy in the market. It would just be buyer beware. Think about that for a minute. You know, back in the 60s, there was a drug called thalidomide, and it was given to women, I think, for during pregnancy, and I think it was for really bad morning sickness, and then they had children with missing limbs. They were called thalidomide babies. Again, without regulation by the experts, for instance, in that case, in the scientific medical field, guess what? That wouldn't happen. This is relevant. And though we can't really control the Supreme Court, one of the things we can do is put pressure to bear because Joe Biden needs to add more judges to the Supreme Court. And there's nothing that says he can't. And you want to call it court packing? Fine, call it court packing. I don't care. But we need to end this terroristic monopoly that these insane conservatives have on the SCOTUS, on the Supreme Court. Make no mistake about it. Keep in mind, the Supreme Court is unelected and they're not held accountable. Hell, they don't even have a, uh, uh, not, they don't even have a, uh, any sort of ethical doctrine. Okay, they came up with a code of ethics, which was a joke because there was no enforcement mechanism. It's insane. But I'm, I'm getting off the subject. So that's what we're talking about here. So let's talk about how this Chevron deference doctrine came into being. So you understand. First of all, it was dealing with, um, it was obviously dealing with the, the Chevron company, but the word deference. The root word is defer. When you defer something, when you, for instance, defer to somebody's judgment, you're basically delegating that task to them. So the Chevron deference doctrine basically delegated 
to experts in various fields and various agencies the task of crafting regulations that were not only consistent with the law, but made good sense in terms of the science, whatever, of the law. And then after they crafted these regulations, they would get together with the lawyers to make sure that it was legally working as well. Okay, it was teamwork. That's all this is. And what these goddamn Republican monsters want to do is cut the experts out of the loop. Now think about it for a minute. Do you really want the life of Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene to decide whether or not our food or drugs are safe? Think about that one real hard. Those bubble brains. So, again, how did the Chevron deference doctrine come into being? So, going back to the article by Tom Hartman, quote, the modern effort to destroy or at least neuter Americans' protective agencies began when Ronald Reagan put Ann Gorsuch in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, end quote. So if the last name sounds familiar, it is, it's because Ann Gorsuch is the mother of Neil Gorsuch, who is now in the Supreme Court, and her baby boy, Ann Gorsuch did what Reagan wanted her to do, and she pretty much destroyed the, nearly destroyed the EPA in one fell swoop, but then she got blamed for it. And Neil Gorsuch is still angry about what, you know, what, what abuse he thought his mommy suffered, and so now he wants revenge. That's really what it is. You know, Gorsuch is, you know, a little spoiled brat anyway. So getting back to the article, Ann Gorsuch, quote, directed the agency to dial back restrictions on expansion of factories and other operations that were already polluting the atmosphere, end quote. So there was a case that provoked a challenge to the Supreme Court, and it's the NRDC versus Gorsuch, or rather the Natural, Re Natural Resources Defense Council, no, you've heard of that, your environmental, V. Gorsuch, and why Gor Ann Gorsuch, in other words, because she was the head of the EPA during the Reagan uh, administration. And the Supreme Court overruled the Reagan administration. You think, okay, you know, that would have ended it, right? Uh, you know, Ann Gorsuch was basically sabotaging the very agency she was tasked with leading and allegedly on Reagan's, you know, you know, Reagan's say-so, you know, basically disregarding restrictions on factories that were already polluting, okay? And then the NRDC v. Gorsuch case came about, and the court overruled the Reagan administration under Gorsuch, but she continued to gut the EPA. And according to this article, quote, in her first year heading the agency, get this, there was a 79% decline, uh, and that's according to grist.org, in enforcement cases, and according to grist again, and a 69% drop in cases the EPA referred to the Justice Department for prosecution, end quote. Uh, also, according to grist.org, she Quote, she pushed a 25% cut in her own agency's funding into Reagan's first budget proposal, end quote. So Ann Gorsuch really did some permanent damage to the EPA, so much so it took many years for Congress to, like, basically overturn the cut she made, especially to the Clean Air Act. And not only to the Clean Air Act, but also, quote, According to Phil Clapp, who's the president of the National Environmental Trust, he said, quote, um, 
it took Congress years to overturn her cuts to the Clean Air Act, quote, on everything from automobiles to furniture manufacturers, end quote. Uh, Clapp went on to say, to describe how, you know, basically Gorsuch took what he called a meat act to President Carter's renewable energy programs and, quote, set solar back a decade, end quote, according to Clapp, and that's as documented, again, by Grist.org. Now, Gorsuch was finally, um, she finally resigned from office, and she was kind of forced out because she had to resign in order to, according to, in order to avoid prosecution. And what prosecution would have looked like, uh, Newsweek described as, quote, a nasty scandal involving political manipulation, Superfund mismanagement, perjury, and destruction of subpoena documents, among other things, end quote. So Ann Gorsuch, she was allowed to resign to avoid criminal prosecution again. And this was what, what, was, she, what was she accused of? Quote, a, according to Newsweek, quote, a nasty scandal, I'll read it again, involving political manipulation, Superfund mismanagement, perjury, and destruction of subpoena documents, among other things, end quote. So Ann Gorsuch, according, and, and I, guess, I guess she figured if she went to court, she would have been prosecuted. She would, uh, she would have been convicted, that is. Allegedly committed perjury, allegedly destroyed evidence. When you, when you destroy subpoena documents, that's evidence tampering. There's perjury. Then superfund mismanagement, that's criminal malfeasance. So her baby boy, Anil, who eventually got on the Supreme Court, is going to get revenge for his mommy. And uh, yeah, according to um, Ann Gorsuch, she wrote a memoir titled, Are You Tough Enough? And she said that her baby boy, Neil Gorsuch, was just devastated by her resignation. She wrote, quote, Neil got very upset halfway through Georgetown prep and smart as a whip. Neil knew from the beginning the seriousness of my problems. He also had an unerring sense of fairness, as do so many people his age. You should never have resigned, he said firmly. You didn't do anything wrong. You only did what, the, what President Reagan ordered. Why are you quitting? You raised me not to be a quitter. Why are you a quitter? He was really upset, she added, end quote. Okay, obviously, Neil Gorsuch does not have a great sense of justice because, you know, she committed those crimes, all right? If, if she was innocent, she wouldn't have resigned. Again, that's my opinion, but still, you know, the excuse that, well, the president ordered you to do it, so it's okay, doesn't work. Nobody, whether it's uh, a cabinet post like Ann Gorsuch had or someone in the military, you have a right to disobey an, an illegal order. That's it. So this criminality that we're seeing coming from Trump and his acolytes, it dates back long before that. Reagan committed criminal acts, just like Nixon before him. Okay, we need to stop this. So Neil Gorsuch is just, you know, I think the reason he wanted to be on the court, on the Supreme Court, was to get revenge for his mommy. Okay, seriously. You know, this is, people are sick. You know, the idea that these agency regulations are needed to have, you know, a modern society where basically we go to the grocery, we can count that our food is real, relatively safe. 
you know, or the medicines are relatively safe, you know, or that your employer doesn't have a right to place you in danger. You know, back here in St. Louis, we had a big, still a big case of environmental crimes dating back to like World War II, you know, where they were processing uh, radioactive fuel here. And, uh, you know, basically these workers were tasked with, you know, discarding spent radioactive fuel, and they were never told what they were carrying. And these people just had cancer clusters like you wouldn't believe. They died from this Westlake landfill, basically. And, um, you know, that's a, per that's a perfect example of an employer putting workers in direct deadly danger, lying to them and getting away with it. Without these regulations and enforcement, we can go right back to that. There would be no legal standing to challenge them. Okay, and that's what the billionaires want. So how would they get there? Well, let's talk about how regulatory law works. We're getting to the, all that now, all right? Um, so let's use the example of the EPA and carbon, CO2, and how it's supposed to work in what Tom Hartman calls super simplified form. I'm going to, re again, read straight from it. One, quote, Congress passes a law that says, for example, that the Environmental Protection Agency should limit the damage that pollutants in the environment cause to the planet. Congress, the Constitution's Article I branch of government, defines the broad goal of the legislation, but the executive branch, under Article II, which encompasses the EPA and other regulatory agencies, has the responsibility to carry it out, end quote. And that's part of the problem. Number two. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number two, the EP, quote, the EPA, part of the, that executive branch, and it answering both to the law and the president. Let me start reading that over now, starting to stutter. Sorry, folks. Number two, quote, the EPA, part of that executive branch, and answering both to the law and the president, then convenes panels of experts. They spend a year or more doing an exhaustive deep dive into the science, coming up with dozens or even hundreds of suggestions to limit atmospheric CO2, ranging from rules on how much emission cars can expel to drilling and refining processes that may leak CO2 or methane, which degrades into CO2, et cetera, end quote. So we're going through the process. This is what these regulate, regulatory agencies do, number three. And again, they're using EPA and CO2 as the example. Number three, quote, the expert suggestions are then run past a panel of rule-made bureaucrats and hired gun rulemaking experts for the EPA to decide what the standards should be. They take into consideration the current abilities of industry and the cost versus the benefits of various rules, among other things, end quote. Number four, Quote, after they've come up with those tentative regulations, they submit them for public review and hearings. When that process is done and a consensus is achieved, they make them into official EPA rules, publish them, enforce them, and the CO2 emissions begin to drop, end quote. Okay, so here's where the Chevron deference doctrine comes in. Quote, 
This is a process that simply comports with common sense as the Supreme Court ruled in 1984 when they established what's called the Chevron deference to legitimize and defend our regulatory agencies. It goes on to say, quote, that doctrine established by the Supreme Court and reflecting a century of the will of Congress and presidents of both parties who signed regulatory agencies into existence says that when a regulatory agency does its due diligence and determines reasonable rules for a substance or behavior they have the legal authority to regulate, the court should defer to the judgment of the agency. Okay, end quote. So that's really what it's saying. It's saying that if the regulatory agency, whether it's EPA or, you know, the education department, whatever, when they do their due diligence with their experts in various fields and they come up with reasonable rules for either a substance or a behavior that is under the legal authority they are allowed to regulate, the court should defer, in other words, delegate to the judgment of the agency. Makes perfect sense. That way, you have scientists helping, basically creating regulations for various scientific fields. You don't have an idiot politician that maybe, you know, runs a CrossFit gym deciding what the EPA is going to do. Okay? It goes on to say, quote, Congress passes laws that empower regulatory agencies to solve problems. The agencies figure out how to do that and put the rules into place and the solutions get enforced by the agencies. And when somebody sues to overturn the rules, if the courts determined they were arrived at through a reasonable process without corruption, those rules stand, end quote. Notice that phrase, without corruption. The conservatives on the Supreme Court, not a single one of them can claim they aren't corrupt. All six of them have proven, have conflicts of interest, at the very least, and, you know, basically overt corruption. Everyone, whether it's John Roberts, who is the um, Chief Justice, uh, Amy, Judge Amy, Alito, um, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and, of course, Clarence Thomas. They're all owned by corporate and billionaires. And I do mean owned So you've got this corrupt right-wing nut job Supreme Court, okay? And they came and they overturned rules made by the EPA about CO2 emissions from power plants in June of 22 in a case called West Virginia versus EPA. And it's that case that set things up for the arguments in um, the Loper Bright versus Gina Raimondo. It was a Chevron deference case. Okay, and it goes on to say, quote, their rationale was that because the legislation that created the EPA doesn't specifically mention, quote, regulating CO2, the agency lacks that power. Okay, that's, end quote, that's their, their actual rationale. And basically a year and a half ago in West Virginia v. EPA, they lost that power, the power of regulating CO2. That's what was discussed. Now, that was what was decided a year and a half ago. So now they're trying to take the decision in West Virginia v. EPA and make it broader, like across the board. Okay? You know, this is Charles Koch's major wet, pornographic westering. Make no mistake about it. 
where basically billionaires would have nothing restricting them. Nothing. It is that bad, folks. The article goes on to say, quote, the coal, oil, and natural gas-fired power plant industry has been popping champagne corks for almost two years now as CO2 levels continue to increase along with the temperature of our planet. It goes, end quote. It goes on to say, in addition to Gorsuch, the court's decision makers in West Virginia, VEPA, included Amy Coney Barrett, who, as docu- whose father was a lawyer for Shell Oil for decades, as documented by The Hill. And it goes on to say how John Roberts, Samuel Alito, and Brett Kavanaugh uh, are on the court in part because they received support from a network funded by fossil fuel billionaires. And that's as documented by The New York Times. And then you've got Clarence Thomas. They call him Clarence on the tape, Thomas. Uh, and Clarence Thomas, here's there, here just shows you the, the hypocrisy of Clarence Thomas. He is bought and paid for. Fifteen years ago, Clarence Thomas actually supported the Chevron deference. He did. But then in 2020, he wrote something totally different. He said, quote, Chevron compels judges to abdicate the judicial power without constitutional sanction. Chevron also gives federal agencies unconstitutional power. He wrote that in in 2020, according to the uh, Cornell.edu and Baldwin, the United States. So, and I don't believe it's because Clarence Thomas just changed his mind. All right? To say he's been on the take is, you know, pretty easy to say. And it's been documented. So, you know, once again, there are... I really believe that Supreme Court justices should have to follow the same code of ethics as any other judge. <clears throat> Just do. So, and according to Tom Hartman, this what Clarence Thomas did gives us a clue as to how this whole thing is going to go down. That all, you know, he's predicting all six Republicans in the court, um, since they voted to gut the EPA's ability to regulate CO2, you know, it's going to go the same way for the Chevron deference doctrine. Now, uh, with West Virginia versus EPA, all three Democratic nominees opposed the decision. Okay, and this is West Virginia v. EPA. Justice Elena Kagan wrote, quote, that the, um, Kagan wrote that the court, quote, does not have a clue about how to address climate change, yet it appoints itself, instead of Congress or the expert agency, the decision-maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening, end quote. You know, this ruling, you know, really just tears. It, it, it disregards what hundreds of scientists, millions of public comments, hundreds of thousands of science hours, you know, researching various problems and trying to come up with workable solutions. It undermines all that, Okay. And the article goes on to say, quote, according that the Supreme Court ruling, quote, was essentially that all that research into the specifics of anticipated regulations, all those hundreds of scientists, millions of public comments, and hundreds of thousands of science hours invested in understanding problems and coming up with workable solutions must be done by Congress rather than administrative regulatory agencies. Okay, end quote. And then the article goes on to describe, like, Congress doesn't even have the time or the staff 
Congress is not stocked with scientific experts. And if they brought in scientific experts, let's face it, the political process would get in the way, they would be bought and paid for. You know, this is why you don't want civil service that's, that's basically a collection of political appointees. You want a professional civil service of experts that earned their job, that don't owe their job to any political party. It's the only way you're going to get honesty. Um, so, you know, the Chevron case, you know, so West Virginia, the EPA, kind of set everything up. All right. Um, I'm going to make a really nasty comparison. If conservatives on the Supreme Court were like a gang of rapists, and they're going to gang bang these agencies, West Virginia EPA versus EPA was basically, you know, the roofie. That's the case that was the roofie to set up the full rape in the Loper Bright Enterprises case, which is the way to dismantle Chevron deference. Okay? And in this case, the court is, you know, preparing to expand that and destroy our agencies. Okay? So basically, if the conservatives get their way on the Loper-Bright case, protective regulations on anything in this country would at the very least be severely limited, if not totally ended. Okay? And court challenges to every regulatory agency would just flow in. They'd have no chance. Okay? So, you know, there's, you know that's what they're really saying. So. You know, these conservatives are saying that the EPA and any other regulatory agency can't do any of the steps listed above. You know, they're saying that, quote, the detailed and time-consuming analysis of a problem, developing specific solutions and writing specific rules has to be done by Congress itself, end quote. Do you hear how insane that is? But again, this garbage case was funded by billionaires hiding behind fishermen and various PACs and nonprofit agencies. Okay? So on the surface, this case, Loper Bright, again, is what it's called. Loper Bright said that I lost my place here. Loper Bright Enterprises versus Gina Raimondo. And you can even see, you know, I think it was in New York Times and Time Magazine, you'll see these fishermen, you know, they're bearded, and they look like regular Joes, right? And they're just trying to earn a living. That's why it's presented. But it's not the truth. These fishermen are being used. You know, it's ironic. They may get their way and not have to pay for, um, you know, the observer, but it's going to come back to bite them in the ass when, God forbid, one of them gets sick and, you know, they prescribe a medicine, let's say, that's not safe. They're not thinking that far ahead at all. So the case on the surface is whether or not these fishermen are going to have to pay a specific fee, like I think it's $700 or something, to, co to help cover the cost of the agency that regulates them. And, and okay, fine. But then what Tom Hartman did is he looked at the briefs that were filed by, quote, billionaire and corporate-funded right-wing groups like the following, quote, the Cato Institute, Competitive Enterprise Institute, 
Pacific Legal Foundation, Independent Women's Law Center, Southeastern Legal Foundation, Christian Employers Alliance, National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, Advancing American Freedom, and the Buckeye Institute. Institute. And now there are quotes from each one of these. None of these groups represent the little guy. Make no mistake about it. Now, if these groups were really working for these fishermen, they wouldn't risk their case by pushing to overturn a specific precedent. They would just say, look, you know, um, making these fishermen pay the cost of their observer is unfair and give these fishermen release, boom, it's done. But they're not doing it. They're not really even mentioning the fishermen. They're talking about the precedent. The fishermen are being used. Cato, for example, writes the following, quote, these are coming from their legal brief. It is now clear that Chevron deference is unconstitutional and ahistorical. Over the past 40 years and counting, it has wreaked havoc in the lower courts upon people and businesses, end quote. The Competitive Enterprise writes of the National Marine Fisheries Service, and that's the agency that regulates these fishermen, quote, the agency lacks inherent legislative power and may only use the powers that Congress gives it. Only Congress can decide if the power given to it by the Constitution should be exercised. The agency's attempt to exercise this never assigned power not only goes beyond the authority Congress gave it, it goes beyond any authority that Congress could legitimately give it, end quote. Pacific Legal Foundation goes right to the heart of these regulatory agencies, saying the case turns on, quote, whether the court should overrule Chevron. Notice how none of these groups are mentioning the fishermen, because they don't give a damn. They're using the fishermen. The Buckeye Institute wrote um, that they're submitting an amicus brief to the court. Again, these are all submitted amicus briefs, which is a friend of the court. These are groups that, when you submit an amicus brief, you don't have a direct interest necessarily. It's none of your business, but they're doing it because they want to step in. The Buckeye Institute wrote, quote, to speak on behalf of the thousands of small businesses concerned with agency aggrandizement of power through Chevron Deverance. Okay. Okay, so whose side are these on? Well, you know what? Most of us just want, you know, safe foods, safe drugs, safe cars, reasonable protections for workers in the workplace, clean air and water. Um, and the Biden administration has stepped up, which, again, you haven't heard. So here we go. Quote, in defense of America's regulatory agencies, the federal government's brief, according to, let's see now, in the Supreme Court of the United States, okay, so they, the feds did something, um, filed the court, lays what is at stake. And here's what the Biden administration uh, registered. Quote, petitioners, okay, so that means the people, the local bright people. Quote, petitioners bear an especially heavy burden in asking this court to overrule Chevron, which stands at the head of a long line of precedents reaching back decades. The court in Chevron described its approach not as an, innov as an innovation, but as the application of well-settled principles concerning the respective roles of agencies and courts in resolving statutory ambiguities. Goes on to say, quote, federal courts have invoked Chevron in thousands of reported decisions, and Congress has repeatedly legislated against this backdrop. Regulated entities and others routinely rely on agency interpretations 
the courts have upheld under the Chevron framework. It goes on to say, quote, by centralizing interpretive decisions in agencies supervised by the president, Chevron also promotes political accountability, national uniformity and predictability, and it respects the expertise agencies can bring to bear in administering complex statutory schemes. Okay. And it also says, quote, petitioners offer no persuasive special justification for overruling Chevron, let alone the type of particularly special justification that will be required to overturn such a deeply ingrained part of administrative law. Petitioners principally contend that Chevron improperly transfers the authority to say what the law is from the judicial branch to the executive branch. But this court has explained the Chevron framework rests on a presumption that statute's ambiguity constitutes an implicit delegation from Congress to the agency to fill in the statutory gap. Basically, the Biden administration is saying, look, the Chevron framework, you know, basically is, is consistent with the framework that when a statute or a law is ambiguous, maybe, in other words, kind of vague, that there is an implicit you know, an implied, in other words, delegation of power from Congress to the experts in that agency. Okay? Um, and, you know, I agree. So Tom Hartman writes, in, you know, in his own way that no one else can do. Tom Hartman wrote, quote, this could be the big enchilada, the case that fundamentally transforms America and American government from a modern well-functioning nation into a third world backwater where massive corporations and the billionaires they made rich uh, instead of we the people through elected representatives set the rules. It's corporate America's dream. And it's true. It is corporate America's dream. It would be our nightmare. We're going to be talking about this more in the future. I just wanted you to get an idea of what's going on. And, you know, and for those of you that say, well, I don't like Biden. Look, Biden wasn't my choice either. I wanted Bernie. That's besides the point. You know, for those of you that are just saying, well, I don't like the lesser of the two evils. I'm not going to vote for Biden. Do you honestly think Trump's going to be any better? Seriously. Not to mention the fact that if there are some more, uh, you know, some more Supreme Court justices to replace, do you really want to trust that to Trump? To, you know, to the monster that gave us the likes of Judge Amy or Kavanaugh. Come on now, folks. You know, this in a democracy, even a functional one, and ours really isn't that functional, but even in a functional democracy, nobody gets everything they want. And for younger voters and single-issue voters that say, well, I'm not going to vote for Biden, I'm not going to support this, grow up. Okay, I'm just going to say, grow the F up already, because if you vote third party, or if you decide to sit it out, you are handing it to Trump. The time to vote your conscience is during the primaries. The time to vote your conscience is for members of Congress, even, during those primaries. The general election, you have a moral duty to keep a monster like Trump out of out of power. That's it. Okay? Grow the F up, people. Seriously. <clears throat> okay, so now we're going to move on to our editorial, but first a little 
break. Okay, and we're back. Okay. So now what we're going to do is we're going to talk. It's going to be our editorial. And then we're going to talk about the jackass of the week and then end with Randy Rainbow. Okay. So this is an article from dcreport.org, which I found out about this week. Really some interesting reading there. And this is an editorial that was written by Dr. Bandy X. Lee and Harper West. Um, it was written back in 21, actually. And the headline reads, How Trump and Other Cult Leaders Infect Their Disciples. There's a lot of talk out there right now about how, you know, these, these not, the Trump base, they're basically cult members. And I hear a lot of excuses, you know. I, I know people that just, take offense at me basically, you know, delivering back to Trumpers, you know, the hate they dish out. Well, first of all, let's talk, they're, they're a cult, if that's true, but they're also, this is a culture of abuse, and uh, they're bullies. And I'm going to tell you right now, a couple of years ago, trying to deprogram these morons might have made sense. We're too far along for that now. So the people that are saying appeasement try to, you know, deprogram these, you know, Trump's base, not, you know. And I'm hearing that mainly from people of privilege, white Christians, especially white Christian males, because they don't get it. You know, while they're trying to make nice and understand the cult of Trump, the rest of us are getting killed. All right, so no, I'm not playing that game. We're too far gone for that. You know, the Trump base is talking about you know, based and supporting what can only be called Nazism, you know, setting up concentration camps for people they don't like, you know, allowing a president to not only be in office for life, as long as it's their god, their faux god Trump, but allowing a president to basically assassinate anybody with no legal uh, uh, restrictions whatsoever. You know, they're talking about setting a president up to be a dictator. So, no, I don't feel like being nice to these people. And I actually have a few relatives that are Trumpers. Um, one in particular, I do not understand her at all. You know, she has kids, and I, for the life of me, cannot understand her. You know, we have discussed this, and, you know, I'll say I don't understand, you know, I just don't understand, you know, why She'll say, she'll tell me she doesn't understand why I hate and despise Trump. And my response is, I don't understand why you don't hate and despise Trump. He's a freaking Nazi. And it's like talking to a wall. And she'll say, well, you know, she even tried once claiming that she voted for Obama, this crap. I know we've all heard that. These alleged Democrats who voted for Obama twice, but then went around and voted for Trump. Do you hear how asinine that sounds? That is just plain stupid. And why would they do that? See, I don't believe that at all. I think they're lying. 
You know, I remember in 2016 when Trump was first coming up, you couldn't get any people to say whether or not they wanted Trump. They would just come and go, oh, I don't know. They either lie directly or they lie by omission. The fact is the Trump base cannot be trusted. All right? That's just that they've proven to be dishonest, and we can't afford to trust them. And the fact that they're, some of them are like cultists, I really don't care. But let's look at this article by Sandy Lee, who is a licensed um, what is it, psychiatrist. Let me go back here. It's at the, unfortunately at the end of the article, so I've got to scroll down. Let's see. Yeah, Sandy actually is a forensic psychiatrist, a violence expert, and editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. She's also president of the World Mental Health Coalition. And Harper West is a licensed psychotherapist, uh, as well as an award-winning author and developer of self-acceptance psychology. So this article here really talks about how the cultists that support Trump, that think he's like a God figure, whatever, these are, they're not only cultists, they're people that have been sucked into a culture of abuse. And you have to understand what abusers do. Abusers don't start out as abusive. They actually do what's called love bomb, where they build you up, make you sound like you are the greatest, and they adore you. And then little by little, they flatter you a little less and a little less, and then the abuse starts. Well, by then, you are fully vested in the abuse, you know, thinking that. And, and they gaslight you. They make you think, well, you must have done something wrong to set them off when they were never honest in the first place. Okay, and it makes sense because Donald Trump's an abuser. Too many women have come forward. Um, and, and, you know, you've got the way these Trump followers, you can confront them with facts. Of course, it makes no difference. It makes no freaking difference. They're just nuts. Um, so basically, quoting from the article, it says here that um, – Quote, over the course of the last four years, we have witnessed how his base remained consistently in more or less 40% of the population, despite continuous scandals and policy failures, including vastly increasing the death toll from COVID-19 through malfeasance and misfeasance and even a deadly assault on the Capitol. We had warned that this unwavering adherence was not a product of healthy, rational, and well-informed decision-making, but followed more the pattern of pathological, abusive relationships, end quote, and that was as documented by the St. Louis American. It goes on to say, quote, Trump followers' unwavering adherence. Oh, I'm sorry, I just read that. It goes on to say, quote, this does not mean that each follower of the Trump um, base will exhibit abnormal psychology. On the contrary, they will resemble more victims of abuse and members of a cult, predisposed not just because of personal trauma history, but because of a state of poor collective mental health. Societal mental health is not the same as the sum of the mental health of individual members, and the themes and conflicts of groups are not the same as personal struggles, even though they interact. Uh, it goes on to say some problems are better conceived of as cultural disorders. Okay, as the World Mental Health Coalition recently labeled racism and white supremacy. So, you know, it goes on and it goes on. It says the U.S. was primed for abuse. Okay? And I believe that. Um, and part of the problem is that the Democratic Party refuses to fight. You know, they basically have not stood up to the racists in the GOP. They, 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 may, they may talk about it a little bit, but they don't really fight for us. 
that's it. Really that simple. Um, and under Prime for Abuse, the Prime for Abuse, the article says, quote, it is important to note how the United States as a whole in the last few decades ha has been primed for nationwide vulnerability to narcissistic abuse, no matter their individual variations of resistance. After four years of the Trump presidency, many of us who opposed him feel traumatized and victimized by his emotional abuse. Um, and then it goes to say what may be surprising some of his followers are also victims of his abuse. And then it describes love bombing. And love bombing is what extreme narcissists do. They give this false expression of affection. They give all this praise and they overpromise, they overpraise. And you know, that's what Trump continues to do when he tells the crowd, I love you all. I love he doesn't love anybody. But this is what happens. And you know, at this point, this article goes into it more. I'm not going to get into all this. I really, at this point, don't care. I'm just going to say it. Um, you know, I've heard fellow progressives say, well, they don't like Trumpers, but, you know, they met somebody, so-and-so was, you know, a Trump supporter, but really a nice person. And I'm going, you know, here's the thing. If you can... Go along with the evil actions that Trump wants to implement, then you're not a good person. Period. I don't care how good your manners are. I don't care if you give to charity. You're not a good person if you can walk away from the evil that Trump keeps pushing. That's it. Donald Trump is racist. He is a religious bigot. He is misogynist, hates women. He's homophobic, transphobic. The guy is evil, and it's ironic that these, especially even white evangelicals, compare him to a Jesus figure. It's like, no, he's not the Christ, sweetie. Donald Trump's the antichrist. Get it real. And I honestly believe we're past the time of trying to win over these cultists. We don't have time for that now. We just don't. We need to make it clear to these cowards that if they even try to rob us of our rights, we will ret the retaliation will be immediate, it will be overwhelming, and it will be final. That's it. <clears throat> we will politically destroy them. We will financially destroy them. And since these people love their guns so much, honestly, everybody who is a target of Trump needs to get needs to start loving guns and get plenty of them, arm themselves. I don't want violence. I'm not preaching violence. But these people are cowards, and they want to shoot fish in a barrel, as the saying goes. And if these Trumpers know that this, we're not progressives of yesteryear that are going to sing Kumbaya while they pound us into the pavement, we won't fire the first shot but we will, we will fire back if we have to. That's the only thing that's going to stop these bastards. I'm sorry. you got to get real because these people, they are embracing what can only be called neo-Nazism. They are the neo-Confederacy. And I'm tired of making excuses for them. You know, whether it's family or friends, whatever, they need to be told, finally, make a choice. And if they choose Trump, they are disowned. That's it. 
there has to be consequences. The reason why these Trumpers keep getting more aggressive is because they haven't seen hardly any consequences. And there has to be consequences. These people are not that complex. So, you know, this is, according to the article, they talk about how further accountability, quote, further accountability, prosecution, and limit setting will help discredit and deprogram um, Trump's stronghold and his hitherto, hitherto steadfast followers. We have learned how powerful the spread and reach of mental pathology can be to the point of almost losing our democracy. But we must also recognize that these are well-known dynamics throughout history that are preventable. Next time we can do better through greater mental health awareness and holding our leaders to a mental health standard, end quote. That's what they believe, okay? All righty. So we're going to take a little break here. And the next thing is going to be our jackass of the week. Okay, give me a second here. I was looking for my little clip. Okay, and we're back. So let me go back to my little sword here. Getting ready for our Jackass of the Week Award. Welcome to PNN's Jackass of the Week Award. Rayon. Oh, you ne- Republicans never sounded more intelligent. Oh, Rayon. Okay, so this week, our jackass of the week is Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft. Now, if the name sounds familiar, it's because Jay Ashcroft is the son of former Attorney General John Ashcroft, and John Ashcroft was one of several Attorney Generals um, under George W. Bush. Keep in mind, W. was the president that had his Department of Justice right these really torturous arguments to make torture legal, even though it's a direct violation of the Eighth Amendment. Now, here in Missouri, Jay Ashcroft, he's the Secretary of State, and as such, he's responsible to keep our elections safe. Ha ha. Keep in mind, Missouri is a deep red state. It's Trump country. But we have some pockets of, you know, basically sanity. Um, And Jay Ashcroft's also running for governor. So this is from an article I published on Newsbreak. So just to remind you, um, besides my old work on Huffington Post and BuzzFlash and um, several and op-ed news and several others, uh, I now publish on Nation of Change, Eurasia Review, and also on Newsbreak. And I did this little ditty because apparently J. Ashcroft tweeted, um, it was kind of funny actually, this had to do with the, um, you know, 
the removal of Trump from the Colorado ballot. And, you know, Jay Ashcroft tweeted that, well, you know, if Trump's going to be removed from the ballot, then he could remove Biden from the ballot for insurrection as well because of the failed border crisis policy. Yeah, if that doesn't make sense to you, it's because it doesn't make sense. The article titled, Ashcroft's Threat to Remove Biden from Ballot is Wrong and Asinine, and because it is. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit from it. Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft must, must think everybody is, everyone is stupid except him. When he's not busy accusing the left of all sorts of evils, essentially fighting windmills like Don Quixote, he's championing, championing a false cause, namely the candidacy of Donald Trump. These days, Ashcroft is pushing yet another asinine theory in response to Trump's removal from the Colorado and Maine ballots. By now, the nation knows that the Colorado Supreme Court ruled Trump to be an insurrectionist and as such ineligible for ballot inclusion under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Maine has also followed suit and via state law removed Trump from the ballot for the same reason. In true Trumpian fashion, the Donald's legal team filed an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court claiming the presidency is not accountable to the insurrection clause since the presidency is not an actual government office, end quote. Apparently, logic is not required in the GOP of Trump. Now, Missouri Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft wants to potentially remove President Biden from the Missouri ballot, and I listed the, um, the source from the Daily Beast. Ashcroft also tweeted on X the following, quote, what has happened in Colorado and Maine is disgraceful and undermines our republic. Well, I expect the Supreme Court to overturn this. If not, secretaries of state will step in and ensure the new legal standard for at real Donald Trump applies equally to Joe Biden. Okay, I'm just reading from my article. Ashcroft has a law degree, but he seems confused about the actual law. He's trying to push a false equivalence between Biden and Trump. Serious that Trump has been removed from the ballot in Colorado via Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, Ashcroft is trying to suggest that Biden could also be removed from the ballot on the same charge of insurrection. Ashcroft bases this absurd claim on Biden's immigration policies and the subsequent implementation uh, on our southern borders. Essentially, Ashcroft is claiming that Biden could also be called out as an insurrectionist because of his alleged border policy failings. Now, wanting some clarification, I called and emailed Ashcroft's communication director, Joe Don Cheney. Mr. Cheney and I had a lovely conversation. He was very charming, folksy, kind of conversationalist you could enjoy a coffee with. As the conversation rolled on, he made the specious claim that there was, quote, no evidence of Trump wrongdoing, a.k.a. insurrection, and tried to make Ashcroft look heroic. I asked for a written policy statement and explanation from Ashcroft, and Mr. Cheney said he would look into it. Here are the questions that I emailed Mr. Cheney. One, Secretary Ashcroft claimed that President Biden committed insurrection and subsequently should be taken off the primary ballot in Missouri. He compared this stance to Trump's removal from primary ballots in other states. Exactly what verifiable evidence does Ashcroft have to justify this action? I would like actual legal citations in addition to various other sources. Since Ashcroft has a law degree, this request should be simple for him. Two, Ashcroft cited the opinions of Governors DeSantis and Abbott to support his supposition. Why does Ashcroft feel the public has no right to view any evidence of these accusations he has hurled at Biden? And three, has Ashcroft taken his concerns to Missouri Attorney General Bailey? Have they been conferring? Again, where is the evidence? 
Cheney responded via email on 125.24. Here was his response as Ashcroft's uh, rep. Quote, regarding removing individuals from the ballot in the case before the U.S. Supreme Court, Donald J. Trump v. Norman Anderson, Secretary Ashcroft filed an amicus brief last week with the court in support of neither party. His underlying concern is that if patrician, patrician, if patrician individuals can make political decisions to remove candidates without due process, then we are on a slippery slope as a nation. Cheney added that quote, for Democrat secretaries of state in Colorado and Maine to arbitrarily remove a Republican candidate for president of the United States. Okay, that's not even a sentence, but that's okay, I'll go on. Quote, if these two specific individuals have the power to block a candidate from the voters, then others in similar roles will surely follow, end quote. Cheney finished by writing that, quote, it is for the people to decide, and Secretary Ashcroft is confident the Supreme Court will put a stop to these shenanigans, end quote. And I've got the source here. We go on, I went on to write, quote, Mr. Cheney failed to offer any verifiable evidence that Trump's removal from the Colorado ballot in particular was arbitrary. I was referred to Ashcroft's Secretary of State webpage but could not access it after multiple attempts. None of this matters. It merely serves as a distraction from the true issues regarding Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a.k.a. the Insurrection Clause. Attorney Mark Elias breaking it down. Constitutional attorney Mark Elias sums up the case for insurrection very succinctly in three basic questions, and they are as follows. One, did Trump engage in insurrection? Two, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to the office of the president? And three, does the oath that Trump took constitute an oath to support the Constitution? According to the Colorado Supreme Court, Trump did engage in insurrection. The court also ruled that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, a.k.a. the Insurrection Clause, does apply to the office of the president, that the president's oath of office does mandate the president to, quote, support the Constitution. The court ruled that, quote, a majority of the court holds that Trump is disqualified from holding the office of president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, end quote. It should be noted the court stayed the decision until the Supreme Court makes the ruling in the case. So did Biden commit the same insurrection? Ashcroft has not proven the case to remove Biden from the ballot in Missouri based on alleged insurrection due to his border policies. In fact, Ashcroft's allegations against Biden don't even meet the required criteria to justifiably make the case for insurrection. The dislike border policies alleged insurrection on Biden's part. First, statistical records kept by DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and Border Security do not support Ashcroft's allegations. Comparing the Biden administration's record to his predecessor, Trump, clearly shows fewer illegal crossings under Biden. Numbers don't lie. The Biden border policy continued Trump's Title 42 until the pandemic waned. Title 42 permitted rapid expulsion of migrants with no due process. Title 42 was condemned internationally as inhumane. Human Rights Watch stated that Title 42 as, quote, illegal and antithetic, quote, violates the human rights of those subjected to it. Biden did allow Title 42 to expire and replaced it with regional processing centers in Latin America to encourage legal pathways to immigration. These are the facts of the potential complaint. What constitutes insurrection according to law? The charge of insurrection must meet certain criminal elements in order to stick. Ashcroft's complaints regarding his opinions on border security at our southern edge fail to meet those criteria. He is claiming that Biden is allowing dangerous migrants to cross illegally in numbers far exceeding illegal crossings during the Trump administration, 
and linking this alleged increase in illegal migrant crossings to insurrection. According to 18 U.S. Code 2383, rebellion or insurrection says the following, quote, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof or gives aid or comfort thereto shall be in an, you know, insurrection. And that's according to the federalcriminalattorneys.com. Moving on, President Biden's border policy doesn't begin to meet the legal elements required to charge anyone with insurrection, nor does it approach giving aid to comfort to insurrectionists. So what is Ashcroft's gripe? His future political aspirations, higher ambitions. Ashcroft is running for governor. Presently, he is running against three other GOP contenders. Republicans in Missouri are competing so you can be Trumpier than the rest. GOP in Missouri marches in lockstep to defend Trump. Though Missouri is largely considered a flyover territory, the roots of racism, religious bigotry, misogyny, and homophobia are old and deep, and Ashcroft knows this. Playing to the rabid Trumpian lynch mob may be politically profitable, but it also shows a man who lacks a sense of ethics. While his behavior may... Let me start again. Playing to the rabid Trumpian lynch mob may be politically profitable, but it also shows a man who, who lacks a sense of ethics. While his behavior may not be technically illegal, it is unethical. Ashcroft knows his attacks have no factual or legal merit, but like any other bully, he likes to throw sand in his opponent's eyes. Ashcroft's editorial trying to justify his abuse of power. J. Ashcroft published an editorial in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch titled, Barring Trump from state ballots sets dangerous precedent. He made the argument that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment can only be used to remove a candidate after they have been convicted of insurrection. His entire argument runs counter to the prevalent legal interpretation. Taking a little drink here. Ashcroft claims that oops, sorry. Ashcroft claims that Trump's removal from the Colorado ballot by the Colorado Supreme Court is egregiously wrong. Ashcroft wrote, quote, the lack of due process and standards for removing a candidate from the ballot creates a dangerous situation and without action from the court may be the last proverbial straw to be placed on our already strained election process, end quote. Ashcroft admitted that insurrection is a criminal offense and then continued his tangent by wrongfully claiming that Trump was denied, quote, few of the elements of due process required for such a prosecution, end quote. Ashcroft then cited that there was, quote, no jury trial, end quote, adding that the case was characterized by, quote, reduced evidentiary standards and accelerated hearing and a reduced burden of proof. Ashcroft's flawed argument, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment states the following, quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as executive or judicial official of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, but Congress may be a vote, but Congress may be a vote of two-thirds of each house to remove such disability. And that's from findlaw.com. The insurrection clause does not require a criminal conviction. Ashcroft is wrong about the due process standards he demands for Trump. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not mention or require an actual insurrection conviction. Even if it did, 
Trump received that very due process in the Colorado case, and he lost. The judge found Trump guilty of committing insurrection against the U.S. Constitution. So where is the violation of Trump's due process rights? While an argument can be made in the main case, the Colorado case is rock solid. The Colorado Supreme Court found Trump guilty of insurrection and as such disqualified from the ballot. The insurrection clause was created to make it impossible for former Confederates to hold public office. Since they committed violent insurrection, they forfeited their right to hold, to hold office. The bigger argument. It is clear that Ashcroft's tirade is little more than a tantrum worthy of Trump himself. On the surface, it appears that Ashcroft is simply claiming that if Trump is held accountable for the crime of insurrection, so should any other president, including Biden. I have no problem with that argument. My contempt is reserved for the GOP position, which embraces a false equivalence when the actual evidence produced in court dispels Republican claims in the Colorado case. No credible evidence has been produced to prove that President Biden committed insurrection being his via his handling of the migrant crisis on our southern border. None. Ashcroft mirrors other childish arguments in Trump land. Now, some history about the Ashcroft dynasty is needed to expose the naked political underbelly of the GOP, in other words, Republican machine in Missouri. Jay Ashcroft is the Missouri Secretary of State and as such is responsible for upholding election law in the state. He is the son of former U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft under George W. Bush. You will recall that it was W's administration under multiple attorney generals that legalized torture in direct violation of the Eighth Amendment. Now, I'm not claiming that the former U.S. Attorney General John Ashcroft was the architect of this heinous policy, but he didn't fight it either. Supporting a fascist like Trump is not a far reach for Jay Ashcroft and other mainstream politicians. In fact, Trump has become mainstream GOP. It should also be noted that Ashcroft is running for governor in the violently blood-red state of Missouri, so this politically motivated threat is nothing more than throwing red meat to the rabid Trump lynch mob, and Ashcroft knows that. Jay Ashcroft is helping to lead the charge to make Trump above the law. The false equivalence he paints between Biden's border policy and Trump, Trump's actual fomenting, inciting, planning, and yes, committing insurrection is worthy of a pouty, 13-year-old brat and not a future governor. And that ran a news break. So that right there was, so for all those reasons, Jay Ashcroft won the Jackass of the Week Award. Brayon, Jay, Brayon. Oh, you never sounded better, sweetie. Okay. So we have one more thing now. Okay. Let me make sure everything is working here okay so now we have randy rainbow and this uh, unfortunately you can't see the video but it's a funny one and it seems appropriate this is to the tune of remember megan um oh god i said you're saying that song all about his base all about the base well this is all about his base um randy rainbow my fellow Americans. Because you know he's all about his face. No feelings. He's all about his face. No feelings. He's all about his face. No feelings. You only just his face. Just his face. Yeah, it's pretty clear who this schmuck is talking to. 
And I can guarantee it got to me or you. Whatever happens, it got just one response. That's what they think. They get what he wants. Why he's so talking, talking about all the travel things. I know it's hard to fathom, but he's still got lots of fans. If you ain't never seen one, connect the dots because they're mostly white supremacists and Russian Twitter bots. You know Obama, he told me he loves me no matter what. He talks, you don't settle for what you got. I'm gonna look behind you if you're sitting in the cheek. I say, okay, so don't ask what your country can do for you. Donald Trump says whatever the hell is they want to say. Why? Because they know they're and it's unproductive. He's all about his thing. And it's real disruptive. He's all about his thing. And it's unproductive. Um, He's bringing stupid back. He's a maniacal maniac. He likes the dummy. He don't give a fuck. Cause there's a face. Nobody whatever comes out of my shit. Hold on his face. Michelle Obama said when they go low, that's when we go high. Director Chris Ray threatened to resign because Jeff Sessions pressured him to fire Deputy Director Andrew McCabe. I would have no direct knowledge of that. Uh-huh. And isn't it also true that Donald Trump paid an adult film star hundreds of thousands of dollars in hush money after having an extramarital affair with her in 2006? No, I have no direct knowledge of what you're saying. Okay, well then I guess there's just one more thing and then I'll let you go. Um, I know you're lying, cause your lips are moving, popping up an interview, you know he's dumb, and you ain't fooling, hey anyone who said maybe I find you, because they, it seems to me are, he seems to be as sweet as you, I know you lie, cause your lips are moving, maybe you're a sorry, I hope you do it right, it's all funny name, you're a sorry,
enjoy your week. Whatever, girl. <laughs> okay. So that's our show for tonight. I hope you learned something. We will be talking more about the Chevron deference case. Um, I wish we had better news. I'm pretty sure that the Supreme Court conservatives are going to strike it down, and then you can't have any confidence in anything out in the market, seriously. Um, you know, if you want to hear more, again, you can find my writings at Nation of Change, Eurasia Review, Muckrack, and now I'm on a news break, and I will be starting a substack very soon. So that's it from deep in the Lou, known as St. Louis. Um, you know, once again, I'm sure I pissed off a lot of Trumpers, and God, that feels good. Ooh. Anyway, with that, I say good night, and whatever you believe in, God bless us, because Lord knows we need some salvation from that orange Cheeto monster. Bye.